Dr. Jones, Dr. Taylor, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting us. It's really a pleasure to be here. Start us out, if you would, please, Dr. Taylor, with a patient scenario. So I take care of a 56-year-old man who's been living with HIV since 1996. He also has a history of asthma and eczema, but he mostly sees me for his routine HIV care. I've cared for him for the last eight years, and he has had long-standing serologic suppression that entire time. His most recent viral load measurement of less than 20 copies per milliliter was actually one week prior to the visit that I'm about to describe to you. And at this visit, he comes in and he reports that his house was burgled. And then the robbers actually burned his house three months prior to this visit with me. And all but one of his pets died in the fire. Since then, he's been having a terrible time. He relives the fire all the time. He wonders what he could have done differently. He also wonders where other people he meets on the street are laughing at him because they might be these arsonist thieves who did this to him and his pets. And he repeats several times that any time he goes out, he feels like people are talking about him or laughing at him. Throughout the entire visit, he's distressed and anxious and tearful. And for the first time ever, he reports non-adherence. He says about two or three times a week, he's not taking his current regimen. His current regimen is alvitegravir, cabisostat, imtricitabine, and tenofovir alafinamide. And he is also drinking to intoxication and sometimes blacking out every day. Previously adherent patient who's now reporting non-adherence and alcohol abuse in the, con in the context of trauma, what immediate steps are appropriate for the clinician to take? So the first thing I did was assess him for suicidal or homicidal ideation. And because he was so very distressed, and fortunately, he did not have either of those, although he did express some passive suicidality. And then I just tried to listen to him and find out how much was he drinking, whether or not he was safe, were there any other people that he had called upon, whether he was using any other substances in addition to the alcohol. And we sat and talked for about a half an hour about all of those things. Fortunately, in our clinic, we have a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in substance use right down the hall. So I think appropriate for the clinician would be to refer him for counseling and psychiatric care, and we're lucky enough to have that as a part of our clinic. Also, fortunately, was that he realized that this was a problem for him and that he was willing to see her. So I walked him down the hall and introduced him to our social worker, and she was willing to see him right away, which was incredibly lucky for me, I think, and for him. So you've been able to bring him to a social worker. How did she work with him? What did she do? That very first day, she sat with him and really worked to establish trust and to assess his safety. I think I had done it, but it's always good to do that again. And then after that, she asked him if he would be willing to see her regularly. And he said yes. And so she began seeing him weekly or every other week, providing supportive psychotherapy. She also referred him to our clinic psychiatrist, and he was able to get into care with our psychiatrist about four weeks after this initial visit that I'm describing. At that point, he still had some symptoms of paranoia and anxiety, the same that he expressed that first visit. And our psychiatrist prescribed trazodone to him, but not any other medications. And by that point, quite fortunately, his antiretroviral adherence had already improved although his alcohol use still did continue somewhat. We got a patient now, he never had issues with his art adherence before. 
uh, nor did he ever report serious substance use issues or anxiety. Despite this trauma, is, is his behavior unusual in your experience? I think that this is not uncommon. There are studies that show that unanticipated life events or trauma are often a trigger for non-adherence, even in patients who have very good track records of adherence in the past, like this patient. And I think one of the things that is important in this context is that a standard adherence intervention, like a pill box or adherence counseling by itself, or just me obviously talking to the patient in this context, would not have been likely to improve his adherence because I wouldn't have been adequately addressing the underlying trauma. In our newsletter issue, one of the studies that we cover is by Safran and colleagues, which talks about a combined modality of psychotherapy and adherence counseling. I think the superiority of multiple interventions over single interventions has been supported in other studies like the network analysis we presented by Cantor's et al. I think the other thing that you can bring into these contexts where someone has had an unanticipated and quite traumatic life event is trauma-informed care. I know lots of clinics are moving towards trauma-informed care models. Some clinics have been doing this for decades. And then finally, I think knowing what resources you have available in your own clinic and taking advantage of the in-clinic services, it was incredible that I could literally walk down the hall, find our social worker, and have her see him that first day. I don't know if the sort of outcome would have been as positive if she hadn't been able to see him right in the moment and make that connection. Dr. Jones, your thoughts? I agree with Dr. Taylor that I don't think that this is uncommon. I also know that I've had many patients who have done well for years and have a history of trauma and or history of addiction or history of a mental health disorder that has been well controlled and then sometimes triggered, sometimes not triggered, there will be a relapse in depression or alcohol use, sometimes a new addiction. We have a growing problem with methamphetamine use in our city. And so people who've had problems with heroin use that's been well controlled then start using methamphetamines and start having significant problems with their adherence and also with psychiatric disorders. So it is not uncommon to see this. And I think addressing the patient in the manner that Dr. Taylor described is the exact right approach. I think also setting the groundwork for if a patient does have poor adherence, and or they are having problems, either new problems with psychiatric illness or addiction and or adherence, creating an atmosphere where they feel really safe talking about their poor adherence, talking about the problems that they're facing is helpful. I've also had some patients who have not wanted to tell me about their non-adherence because they're afraid that they're disappointing me or they're afraid their medications are going to be withheld. So making sure that there is that safe contact for patients to present their problems is very important. Uh, Dr. Taylor, his viral load remained undetectable despite the documented non-adherence. Was this a surprise? The longer that a patient is undetectable, the more likely they are to maintain virologic suppression, even when adherence levels drop to under 90%, as was definitely the case in this case. 
I think this is something that we don't talk to our patients a lot about, but it is fortunate that the more you're suppressed, the more you're likely to stay suppressed, I think is one way to think about it. In this case, his regimen, which was alvitegravir, cabisostat, intracytabine, and tenofovir alafinamide, is relatively robust to the development of resistance, although it certainly doesn't have the highest barrier to resistance. But I really think that this individual is on a trajectory that was going in a really bad direction, and he hadn't quite gotten there yet. But the quick response to his intermittent non-adherence by the social worker really prevented him from further non-adherence and virologic rebound. I actually saw this patient in clinic last week, and we talked about this, and I let him know that we were presenting his case, and he was very excited about it. And he said that he really felt like at the point that he saw us and sort of confessed all this, he was on the edge of a cliff and had really started drinking a lot more and blacking out. And then if something hadn't happened that week, he's not quite sure what would have happened to him. But again, this sort of speaks to the need for a timely intervention and the real importance of combined modalities to deal with adherence problems that are often much more than just whether or not you can put a pill in your mouth. Dr. Jones, any any comment on that? Anything to add or fill in? I agree with Dr. Taylor and think that if you aren't able to provide a prompt intervention or the patient isn't at a place to fully engage with that intervention, then thinking about alternate regimens that may have a higher barrier to resistance or if you're getting to the point where you're worried about resistance developing, maybe even holding medication until the patient can become more adherent, those are certainly things to consider. Also, employing more intensive adherence services when they're available. So we do in clinic pillboxes where patients come in. So just as Dr. Taylor was saying, thinking about that multimodal approach and then as you need to, intensifying the adherence and other support that you're providing as needed. Dr. Jones to continue with this uh, in the clinic perspective uh, with another patient scenario. So uh, whenever you're ready, doctor. Sure. So this is a case of a 35-year-old African-American woman with a history of HIV diagnosis during pregnancy in 2007. And I first saw her in 2015 when she returned to care after two years without any HIV care or antiretroviral therapy. At the time of her initial HIV diagnosis, she was started on boosted atazanavir and cytovudine with lomivudine. Her delivery was unremarkable and child remained HIV negative. After delivery, she was changed to tenofovir, just a proximal fumarate, co-formulated with emtricetabine and continued on boosted atazanavir. After that, she had intermittent clinic contact and adherence to medication. And when she did get her labs drawn, her viral load was typically in the low thousand copies per milliliter. When I first saw her in 2015, I was looking through the notes to see if there was any information about what was going on with the patient, why she was not being adherent, and I wasn't able to find anything. So when I saw her in 2015, her CD4 count was 392 and her viral load was 13,000 copies per milliliter. And she said 
that aside from the time when she was pregnant, she had never really been taking her antiretroviral medications consistently. And she said this was mainly due to significant nausea. She also was missing multiple appointments because of work and family obligations. And she also has a history of sexual abuse as a child and had symptoms of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And when I saw her, she was reporting symptoms consistent with depression and PTSD and anxiety. She was working as a bus driver and she was a single mother with three young children and she denied any alcohol or illicit drug use. I drew her labs, and then when she came back two weeks later, I started her on a regimen of dolutegravir, abacavir, and lamivudine. And I chose this regimen because it was one pill, and it was once a day, and also does not have the ritonavir, which was likely the cause of her nausea, along with the protease inhibitor. She was also referred to psychiatry for treatment of her depression and PTSD. And over the next seven months, she was very adherent to her medications and appointments and achieved an undetectable viral load. Subsequently, she stopped taking her medications and missed follow-up appointments due to a lot of things going on with her family and her interpersonal relationships. And she also was not consistently following up with psychiatric care. This time, she was out of care for three months and then returned to the clinic, and we restarted her antiretroviral regimen, and she resumed care with psychiatry, and this happened again another time, and the lapse this time was again after a few months, and once again, she reengaged in care quickly, and ever since 2016, she has remained a very high level of adherence to her medications, which is supported by pharmacy-filled data to her medical appointments, and she has achieved the sustained and undetectable viral load. So I still see her regularly. She had a really significant delusional parasitosis where she felt like there were bugs crawling all over her skin despite no evidence of any parasites or anything like that. And this was definitely related to her PTSD. She worked through that and throughout this now has really been able to maintain adherence to her medication and have a sustained undetectable viral load. And despite having intermittent crises, really stays in connection with us and continues to come back for care. Now, patients who have shown poor adherence to art or, and or they, they have sustained uh, viremia, uh, talk to us, if you would, please, about how you evaluate them. What's your approach? So I think creating a really supportive environment so patients can feel comfortable sharing the factors that might be interfering with their adherence and even acknowledging the fact that they've been non-adherent, that's very important. I think celebrating the successes, coming to clinic, taking medications, recognizing that for a lot of patients that may be difficult considering the other psychosocial issues a patient may be facing is important. I think reviewing potential barriers to adherence. So whenever someone comes in and they're having difficulties with adherence, I go through with them what may be things that are getting in the way that we know from studies can interfere. So non-disclosure can be really huge. If they move to a new place and they have roommates and they don't want to let people know about their diagnosis or they go on vacation and they don't feel comfortable bringing their medication, that's important. Sometimes it's the taking of the medication, so the characteristics of the medication itself, the size of the pill, 
having to take the medication multiple times a day, side effects from the medication, food requirements, insurance issues. That happens a lot with patients who become poorly adherent, work schedule, memory issues, literacy limitations, and then other psychosocial barriers. So transportation issues, as well as, as we've already discussed, addiction and mental health disorders. So once you've done your assessment, identifying these different interventions that can address barriers and support adherence. So as we talked about in this review, there are multiple interventions presented that could have supported this patient and her adherence, including the availability of smartphone technology, CBT and psychotherapy, and as I did with this patient, a simplified antiretroviral regimen. We know that using motivational interviewing, which is a counseling approach that is client-centered and designed to elicit behavioral change, and strength-based counseling, which is a counseling approach that focuses on individual strengths and resources, empowering the patient to make a desired change, that those are evidence-based interventions to support the patient's ability to follow through with making improvements to adherence. As demonstrated in this case, a lot of patients will come in and talk about side effects that they attribute to the antiretroviral medication. So really listening to that, you may not think that the symptom the patient is experiencing is really related. And if you don't, then helping figure out what is causing the symptom. The other piece is that perhaps it really is the medication that is causing the symptoms the patient is experiencing. So really listening to that, because if a patient really is attributing a symptom to a medication and that symptom is causing them a lot of discomfort or distress, that's going to make it very hard for him or her to be adherent. And then also just really reviewing the benefits of achieving and sustaining an undetectable viral load. So making sure that we're explicit about the evidence that shows that with a sustained undetectable viral load, there is less death, less illness related to HIV, and the fact that with a sustained undetectable viral load and adherence, that the virus cannot be transmitted to sexual partners. And I also do think about partners as well. So when patients do have a detectable viral load and they're not adherent, and if they are sexually active or are injecting drugs and have individuals with whom they inject, making sure that I discuss PrEP for those patients. And then obviously connecting patients to supportive services and resources as indicated and available. So Dr. Jones, we just talked about evaluating these patients. And I guess the obvious follow-up is what's your approach to managing these patients, doctor? So I think, as I mentioned earlier, really celebrating success. So some of that motivational interviewing and strengths-based counseling involves really empowering the patient to recognize that within him or herself and with the appropriate support, they have the ability to be adherent. And that is a success for many different reasons. Making sure that adherence, pharmacy fills, and interventions, a person has been struggling with adherence, making sure that those are reviewed at follow-up visits. Sometimes you have to adjust your adherence plan. So an intervention that you employed is not successful because the patient doesn't have consistent access to it or it's interfering with something else that they have a commitment to making sure that you're being collaborative when you are developing and implementing your adherence plan. 
And then I think, as we've described, it is not uncommon for people who have had poor adherence to relapse. This patient is a real example of that. And each relapse to poor adherence for her has been shorter and shorter to the point where if she is not adherent, it's really mainly to clinic visits that she has been able to be really committed and sort of internalize the importance of taking her medication every day. But as providers, when you put in a lot of effort to help people who have all of these different medical problems and psychosocial issues, and then you work with them really hard on their adherence, if there is a relapse, to really not take it personally. It's not really about us, it's about them. And just making sure that you are really creating that non-judgmental safe space to be allies with your patients to address these issues of poor adherence. And as we've referenced already in the review, we note Cantors and colleagues pointing out that multiple interventions are additive and when they can be helpful, they, they should be employed. Other things I do is consider more frequent clinic visits. And again, you have to balance with other obligations that patients have with children and family and work. And then, as we've emphasized already, connecting patients to supportive services and resources as indicated and available. Dr. Taylor mentioned an MSW right down the hall, which was uh, uh, fortuitous with her patient. So adherence support services uh, where you are, what's available in your clinic? So we also have social work co-located on our site, as well as psychiatry, suboxone treatment. Our pharmacy is right next to our clinic. And then we have Ryan White funding, which helps cover insurance lapses to cover medications and clinical care, and also other psychosocial support as patients need it. We have nurse visits where we will do adherence visits with nurses where they will fill pill boxes with patients and we'll ask patients to come in once a week, every two weeks, once a month. For patients with more complicated medication regimens, we have pharmacists who do visits with patients for the pill box fills and adherence support. With our pharmacy, we have patients who can be enrolled in our pharmacy adherence program. So the pharmacist will track the fill data for patients, and if they note that patients have been not picking up their medications consistently, they will notify the prescribing provider and our care team. And then they will also call patients to remind them when they are due for a pharmacy fill. We have patient navigators who can call patients. So I have some patients who like a reminder call each day, and it is actually a nice way for patients to connect with our clinic staff and with our clinic and doing daily reminders. In Baltimore City, there is a Baltimore City Health Department HIV antiretroviral therapy directly observed therapy program where outreach workers will go to patients' homes and observe them taking their medications Monday through Friday and then give reminder calls on the weekends. Other things that we'll use is helping patients set their alarm on their smartphone to remind them to take medications. Again, pill boxes. Some people like the keychain with a little pill holder so they can take it with them. And then when I'm starting patients on medications, warn them ahead of time of potential side effects to the medications and to notify us if any of the side effects are intolerable. Because if you don't warn patients ahead of time, they may balk at taking medications in the future. 
And identifying family members or friends who can support patient adherence is also very helpful. Those are the main interventions that we have in our clinic. This patient was successful in achieving adherence and maintaining an undetectable HIV viral load. Give me, give me the top couple of reasons why you think that happened. I think first, she identified very clearly that she, for years, had felt nauseated with the regimen that she was prescribed. So switching to one where she didn't experience those side effects and one in which there were fewer pills to take was very helpful. I think establishing the trust with the patient and being responsive to her when issues did arise that were interfering with her adherence. So when she did have an insurance lapse, we were able to address that for her right away. When she presented with symptoms of depression and PTSD, we were able to provide support for her right away. And that sort of individual counseling as well to really think about her adherence issues, address the barriers, and then also to help her recognize and prioritize adherence because of all the very positive health benefits. I think those were the keys to her success. We will wrap things up now by reviewing today's key takeaways as they relate to our learning objectives. So to begin, we reviewed the cases that illustrated the real-world application of evidence-based adherence interventions. Uh, Dr. Taylor? So I think that it's important to recognize that patients typically have multiple reasons for suboptimal adherence, and so thorough assessment of barriers to adherence is important, and it really has to be conducted in a non-judgmental and supportive manner. We know that sometimes intentionally we feel upset that someone is not adhering because we've worked so hard to help them, or unintentionally we ask questions like, why didn't you come to your last appointment? And we shame our patients. They don't feel like coming back to see us or adhering. So the non-judgmental point that was mentioned by Dr. Jones, I think, is really essential. There are many evidence-based interventions that can be used to address barriers that are applicable to the patient and the care setting. And you can use multiple interventions to support adherence. And finally, I think both cases highlight the need for treatment of addiction and mental health disorders in order to support adherence. And our second learning objective, the importance of an adherence plan that's developed in conjunction with the patient and tailored to his or her needs and available resources. Uh, Dr. Jones? Yeah, I mean, I think this is essential. Ultimately, it is the patient who is taking the medication, who is coming to clinic. So we really want to empower them to be adherent. And so the best way to do that is to develop your plan in conjunction with him or her. So you need to ask patients about what they think is the reason that they're not taking their medication. You really need to promote trust between the patient and the care team. And then we have a lot of evidence-based interventions available to employ and tailoring that to the patient in partnership is how you will have the most success. Doctors? Thank you both for participating in this EHIV Review Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting us and for this great discussion.